We have two cases for argument this morning. Schultz versus the Town of Duluth and DeRosa versus McKenzie. We'll take Schultz versus uh, Schultz, Schultz first. Uh, Mr. Paul, you reserve five minutes for rebuttal. You may proceed when you're ready. Good morning. My name is uh, Bill Paul, William Paul. I'm an attorney from Duluth. Thank you. I represent the appellants in this proceeding, and I would start out by pointing out that this court, in the case of in-ray application of Skyline Materials Limited for a zoning variance, wrote as follows. The fields sought to exercise the statutory right of appeal. The parties agree that in order to invoke the statutory procedure, the fields were required to serve an appeal upon the county, um, but the parties disagree as to the proper method of service. And so in the Skyline case, the appeal was perfected by serving the notice of appeal in the form of a summons and complaint upon just the county. Uh, importantly, I would point out that in the Skyline case, the applicant for the variance was not served with the summons and complaint, and of course it wasn't challenged jurisdiction, and the fact that there was a proper perfection of the appeal in that case was not the basis uh, in that case. And there are numerous other cases, Your Honors, in the state of Minnesota where the applicants for the variance are not served with the notice of appeal, and nevertheless, um, the appeal is deemed properly perfected. Council, so, Council, I just want to ask you as a preliminary matter, um, do you concede that the Minnesota Rules of Civil Procedure do apply to this case? I do concede that. Okay, I thought so, but I, I, wanted, to make, I wanted to make that clear. Um, Your Honor, in the, um, I had a misstatement in the appellant's brief to the Minnesota Court of Appeals where um, it improperly reflected that it, um, it's not a new action. Um, it is uh, the commencement of a new action. I agree with that. And in that vein, um, I followed the mo model of the uh, Krumenacher case because uh, I'd frankly never done an appeal from a township decision before. And, you know, unlike the Minnesota Rules of Civil Procedure and a civil appellate procedure where you can, I mean, it's, there are rules, actually, and in this case, there's just a simple ordinance, as you know, that says in order to uh, appeal a decision, you file a notice of appeal within 30 days to the district court, and then there's a whole bunch of case law that's, it's, that's just not enough. You also have to, you know, serve the town board, and in this case, the town clerk. That was all timely done, and so the sole issue is whether or not the applicant, it, whether the appeal was properly perfected by the timely service upon the municipality, in this case the township of Duluth, which rendered the decision. And I would point out, I'm not appealing any decision made by the Billies. The Billies certainly are benefactors of the variance that was granted, but they didn't make the decision which is being appealed. That decision was made solely by the town of Duluth and the board and um, it is that decision that is obviously being appealed. And so it's a 
a very narrow issue, and that is um, here and after, is it the law in Minnesota that a person who applies for the variance and gets it is an indispensable party, and in order to perfect the appeal, that person needs to be served. Here is a policy argument I would submit why that is a very slippery slope. Um, the Court of Appeals and the lower court seem to exercise discretion about who an indispensable party is. I submit to you that rules that allow for the perfection of appeal appeals ought to be hard and fast and not kind of loose and goosey um, because uh, trial courts, district courts, in its discretion, if, this, um, if these decisions are not reversed, can say, oh, you know, they properly serve the municipality, they timely serve the municipality, but you know what, they, they, somebody else was interested in, and we deem them to be an indispensable party, and since they weren't served, appeal dismissed. To have appellate rules be discretionary, I submit respectfully that that ought not apply and be the law in the state of Minnesota. And I would point out a quote in the Skyline case um, from this court, of course, in 2013. The very final uh, paragraph says, um, we are sympathetic to the plight of the fields who had tried to perfect an appeal in that case and did not serve it properly. And there's no contention, I don't think, in this case that I failed to serve the county, excuse me, the township properly. Uh, we are sympathetic to the plight of the fields who serve their appeal in good faith reliance on the Court of Appeals opinion in Curtis. But making an, an exception here even if we were free to do so, would be incongruous uh, with the policy to construe the rules concerning the commencement of an action to provide a, quote, single uniform course of procedure that applies alike to all civil actions. And that's what I'm asking this court to do, that to make a ruling so that practitioners aren't guessing about who they need to serve in order to perfect an appeal of a decision of a municipality of a town. Council, say that we agree with you that the, your appeal is properly perfected against Duluth, so the district court has subject uh, matter, um, has jurisdiction. Um, then we go to Rule 1901. Um, what's your argument when we get to Rule 19? Um, I do not believe that Rule 19 applies, um, and if it does, the, as, as you are, are well aware, the district court has the discretion to say, hey, if they believe that an indispensable party is not included, the district court on its own volition can order that that indispensable party made, be made a party to that proceeding. The case law is clear on that. Indeed, the Rule 19 by itself, Your Honor, is clear on that. Um, and I'd be happy to quote it, but... In fact, the, w the way I re read Rule 1901, it's mandatory. If you can um, join the person and if they are, you know, have a, uh, an interest that's so important that it would 
leave the person's ability to protect that unprotected, the district court is supposed to add that party, right? Didn't you cite like the door case I, for I, that proposition? I think I did, but um, I can't be positive. But um, so if, if the appeal is properly perfected, then there are remedies available to involve the billies if that's what the district court feels it needs to do in order for the billies to protect their own, own interests. But and even if you didn't serve the, the billies, um, they, they can always intervene if they feel like their interests are, there are different rules of procedure that would enable them to protect their interests, correct? And I obviously agree with you 100%. But let me uh, also point out this. When one appeals from a decision of a township or a municipality, Upon review, the only thing reviewed is the record that is created at the township level. There's no new testimony. There's no new evidence. And so if the Billies wanted to intervene or if the court wanted them to be made a party, the, the only thing the Billies could do um, wouldn't be to offer any testimony or offer any additional evidence in support of why the decision of the um, township ought to be upheld, they can only make an additional oral argument or written argument at a motion for summary judgment, uh, likely echoing the position of the township about why the variance um, ought to be upheld. Um, and so from a practical point of view, having them involved only gives them the chance to advocate for the support of the variance. It doesn't give them the right to supply additional evidence or like the Minnesota Court of Appeals um, erroneously in my view uh, pointed out the record in this case reflects that the Billies have invested 75 or $150,000 and and gee whiz I mean that um, uh, paraphrase here um, the Court of really Appeals make, didn't say gee whiz say that what the Court of Appeals didn't say gee whiz no I, yeah <laughs> sorry I, I need to be more formal um, can't change the stripes of a tiger, Your Honor. So in any event, um, they, they suggested that the record reflects that the Billies put in a lot of money, and so they're going to be really prejudiced. Um, and I, when I read that, I thought to myself, well, the Court of Appeals isn't following the case law that reflects crystal clearly that the only evidence that the district court can consider, and then the Minnesota Court of Appeals, upon a review of perhaps an affirmation of the district court of the issuance of the variance, is that record created right there that led to the approval of the numerous variances. So, counsel, I have a question. It's a small question about the chronology of this case. Um, you put out uh, the complaint for service by fax to the sheriff. That turned out not to be the way to go under Cox versus Mid-Minnesota. Issued on the very same day that we were arguing the motion in the afternoon. I, so, so then, once that decision was issued, did you go ahead and, and reserve the billies? I did not. Why not? Well, um, I the the ordinance says in order to perfect an appeal, it doesn't say that. Well, I understand your legal position. I'm just saying, since the legal position was a subject of dispute, why not just go ahead and reserve them and? make sure they were parties to the case before the um, motion to dismiss was granted? Uh, 
Well, my, my goal was, of course, to appeal the decision of the township. And then following the model of the Krumenacher case, frankly, Your Honor, I called the attorney for the Krumenacher case. Hey, will you send me your pleadings? And so I just followed all of the um, counts that were alleged in the Krumenacher summons and complaint. It, it didn't occur to me, Your Honor, to reserve them because the 30-day period of, to set a deadline for the notice of appeal had, had long expired. And, um, and frankly, I, then and even now, I don't think that uh, it's necessary. For example, I could have, in hindsight, like in Ray Skyline, it, it, the caption of the case is, in reapplication of Skyline Materials Limited for Zoning Variance. I think I could have simply done notice of appeal and had a one paragraph uh, with, a, with a summons, and instead, you know, I make it overly complicated, and, you know, here I am. Um, but it, it just didn't occur to me because of the timing, the timing of it, Your Honor. Your, your position basically is it makes no difference one way or the other whether the billies were attempted to be served, whether they were served, or whether they weren't served, you've perfected your appeal by serving the, uh, the public body. It's as simple as that. And, um, and I can't think of a more narrow issue for a court to consider than that. When, when I follow the ordinance and I prepare an, a notice of appeal, albeit in the form of a summons and long complaint, and, and nobody's contended that it wasn't timely filed, no one is contending that it wasn't timely served on the town clerk. Um, just to me, as a matter of law, that is a perfection of the appeal, and that the district court and the court of appeals are adding additional elements um, is contrary to, I think, your holding in the Skyline case, and um, it makes rules of appellate procedure just too um, unpredictable to be uh, supported. And so um, I could, I, I have 15 more minutes. I thought to myself, I'm not sure what I'm going to say for 30 minutes. Um, I think my position is clear. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions anyone has, but. Um, I'm loath to bore you for 15 more minutes by saying the same thing over and over we again. We actually like it when attorneys state their points and sit down. So I applaud well, you for that. Well, and, and we know how to ask questions. So if we want to ask you some on rebuttal, we will certainly do that. Thank you, Your Honor. Thanks for your attention. I appreciate it. Counsel, you do have five minutes for rebuttal. Uh, Mr. Alsop. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court, counsel. My name is Robert Elsop, and I represent the town of Duluth in this matter before the Supreme Court this morning. We're here today to ask the court to affirm the lower court's dismissal of this action based on appellant's failure to timely perfect their appeal challenging the township's issuance of a variance to Charles and Carol Billy. The facts in this case are not complicated and are not in dispute. 
The township granted a variance to the Billies in October of 2017 for purposes of building a house that exceeded the limits of their lot size. Uh, the appellants owned the property adjacent or near the Billy's property and after the variance was granted decided to appeal that decision of the, of the township. The appellants appropriately identified both the township and the Billy's as interested parties in this action in their summons and complaint. Council, but when the decision maker is the town board itself, why does a person have to attempt to serve any? I understand that there's a separate Rule 19 question, right. but why does a person have to do anything more than just meet that 30-day deadline that's set out in the in the Town of Duluth ordinance? Well, the 30-day deadline. Well, let me start with where the the authority starts for appealing a variance. That's under 462.31, and all that says is you shall commence a remedy in district court. Beyond that, the zoning ordinance identifies and reiterates that obligation or that right to appeal by going to district court and establishes the time limit of 30 days. That ordinance mirrors the 394.27 uh, statutory provisions for counties as well. That is the statutory and zoning authority for the appeal. It's not specific. It's not spell out the procedures, things like that. From there, it's obvious based on the case law that this court and other courts have issued, uh, practitioners learn how to perfect their appeals. What about the Door case? Because in the Door case, um, they said that you know failure to join an indispensable party is not a jurisdictional defect, and that uh, district courts should, if they can, join those indispensable parties rather than dismiss a whole action when nobody gets to their day in court to see whether what you've done is the right decision. Uh, the door case is, the, the standards of the door case, I agree with their premise as you articulated it, uh, but I think it's distinguishable and I think this case goes beyond that. Um, this case has taken a unique turn. It started out with issues that specifically focus on Rule 19. In other words, were they indispensable parties? Were they necessary for the litigation? And the court, and did the court exercise its appropriate discretion uh, in deciding that the court can't go forward without the billies in the case? As this case progressed, it became clear that it more, became more of a jurisdictional issue. And Door is not a jurisdictional. And that's because the district court really didn't think it had a choice. You know, when I look at its analysis under 19.01, it, it just seemed to stop at the first part, that thinking that they can't be made a part, that the bills, billies can't be made a part of the case. I, I think the district court and the court of appeals both determined the elements or criteria of 19.01 had been established and identified facts to support that. And I would argue that going to 1902 to determine whether the case can proceed without the party in the case, I think based on the appellant nature of this case, the court doesn't have a lot of discretion. Based on the Skyline case and the Elbert case, this is a bright line in the sand that you've got to perfect it uh, with all interested parties within the 30-day limit. Appellants conceded at the hearing for motion for dismissal that their service on the Billies was untimely, untimely. Um, so that suggests to me 
that they can't proceed against the Billies under any circumstances. And the fact that Skyline and Elbert uh, establish that this is a jurisdictional line in the sand, uh, no one can be added after that. It's almost Con like a Council, writ of cert case. Let me, let me test appeals. your proposition that all interested parties need to be served within the 30 days. Okay. Um, doesn't say that in either the town ordinance or the statute, does it? No. Okay, so we have to infer that? No, it's applicable. Uh, the, the rules of procedure apply because based on Skyline, you have to start and commence a new, new suit. That requires service and compliance with Rule 403. Okay, let's try I, this hypothetical. Um, okay. There's a, a, a petition to create an historic district of a couple hundred houses. Okay. And it brutally divides the neighborhood. A hundred neighbors are in favor of making an historic district, and a hundred neighbors are opposed. And the, the town board makes it an historic district. Does someone who wants to appeal that decision need to, to personally serve um, at least the 100 opponents and probably also the 100 advocates within the 30 days? I, I think that's a totally different case in terms of the variance applicant who here has a clear and financial interest. They brought the application for the variance. They are the most interested party. This case does not go beyond that to hypotheticals that the judge, that the justice has put out there. Um, I think in that point then Rule 19 comes into play to so some what's, extent. What's the rule of law whereby we determine whether somebody is an interested party or not in a real estate zoning or, or zoning matter? Well, I would think the applicant <clears throat> itself would be an interested party. I think the township who granted the variance would be an interested party. Um, where, is the, where is the rule of law in the ordinance or the statute that said the township has to be served? What about the hypothetical, the unique hypothetical, where the case is commenced, the township isn't served, but the property owners are? I mean, why does the court limit it to simply the township being the most important party in well, the Well, it was the township that passed the variance. Yeah, but the applicants applied for it. They have a vested interest in the outcome. They offered evidence and, and presented their case to the township board and should have the ability to uh, advocate for its approval moving but forward. Council, can you appreciate that there is a substantive difference between the township who makes the decisions about granting or not granting the variance versus the person who actually is seeking the variance? Because while they may be seeking the variance, they have no ability to... Um, make the decision, the ultimate decision. The ultimate decision is up is with the township. For me, that's where the, the power lies. And so can you tell me what's the difference? I mean, why, why is your argument um, correct? I, I think the difference is, is embedded in Rule 19, 1901. You look at the criteria for determining what's an interested party. Uh, and clearly, the rules of civil procedure apply to this case. And, I, and I'd, I'd be, I, I think, based on those criteria and the case law related to that, including the cases from other jurisdictions that both the district court and the court of, and the court of appeals relied on, where other jurisdictions have determined that property owners who apply for a variance clearly are an interested party. But counsel, why isn't that the role of the district court? Because the district court can add parties to proceedings generally throughout. I mean, that's one of the obligations as a district court judge is that if there is a party that's missing, the district court can join them. So tell me why, if the pleading isn't or the service isn't perfected upon what you might deem as an interested or uh, uh, party, why that, when the district court can actually kind of pick that piece up, 
why that doesn't make a difference? I think the distinction we have here, Your Honor, is that we are dealing with an appeal, an appellate procedure. We're not dealing with the commencement of a normal lawsuit. Uh, I'm trying to think of a situation where there's an appeal to this court or the Court of Appeals. And the part, one of the parties is not, one of the interested parties is not served. It's not perfected appropriately because all the parties were not served pursuant to the rules. Now Obviously, the test, the, the the rules, test is an interested party, it's party. And a party is established by appearing in the action. And well, at the, at the lower, at the, at the uh, township meetings, the applicants clearly participated in the procedure. There was a public hearing, they offered evidence, they advocated for their position, and they were a vest, and they had a vested interest in the outcome. And the distinction I'm trying to make here with regard to your question, why can't they be added later? The distinction is, is this is review by appeal. And therefore, the Skyline uh, decision and the Elbert decision make it clear that it's jurisdictional if you fail to serve. In fact, the Albert court refers to appropriately serving the adverse party or parties, which suggests it could be more than just the governing authority. And where that line is drawn, I'm not sure where it is, but for purposes of making some precedent, some consistency, some, some you know, to further refine how this case, how these cases will be dealt with in the future, I don't think it's unreasonable to ask that the court require in all future cases, and in this case, that the applicant for the variance who has a vested interest in the outcome be served with the notice of appeal. Counsel, I, I don't understand um, your client to be making a separation of powers argument. Um, and and I, don't, I don't see in the briefing an argument that by application of the rules of civil procedure here in this way, the judicial branch is somehow invading the legislative sphere in, in terms of adding to the cause of action provided for in this ordinance. I mean, you're not making a separation of powers argument. I am not making okay. a separation of powers argument, no, no. So with that said, I think it's a combination. I, I want to make sure I understand your argument because I think what, what your argument is is that because they didn't serve the billies in that 30-day period, their appeal against you is, is not perfected either? Correct. But you well, also have an alternative argument that even if the service on Duluth Township perfected the appeal, you then go to Rule 19, and you agree that the billies are um, necessary parties under 19.01, right? Absolutely, yeah. yes. In fact, that's part of your claim. And then you note that, a, that an action under Rule 12 can be dismissed for failure to join an indispensable party. party. Yeah. Um, so y you have really two, you have a fallback argument, which is the R Rule 19, but you have your original argument is the jurisdiction that that the court simply doesn't have jurisdiction over you because um, the neighbors failed to serve the billies. The arguments have actually been reversed over the course of this case. Right. I, hate to, I, hate to, I hate to admit it. Yeah. We started out with a pure Rule 19 analysis, okay? Mm -hmm. And because I, I don't think the district court or the no. um, Court of Appeals looked at this jurisdictional issue. And we did not argue until the Supreme Court. I have to be completely honest with you. Mm -hmm. But you're, you're right, Your Honor, that we are, there's dual potential grounds to affirm this case. 
And those grounds are this, just a pure Rule 19 analysis. Rule 19 and whether it was applied appropriately and whether the court abused its discretion in the application of Rule 19. Were they necessary parties under the criteria of Rule 19.01? I think we all agree they are necessary parties. They have an interest in the outcome. Should the case proceed? Okay, the next question is, can they be added? That's when the jurisdictional part of it comes in. And either the court, lower court determined they can, but I'm not going to because it's not practical and, and it's not in equity and good conscience as identified in both the district court opinion and the Court of Appeals opinion. So they applied the, that standard and determined not to let the case proceed. Both of those arguments are not contested by the appellant. Their arguments in their briefs do not challenge that as being an abuse of discretion. And that's how down below the case was affirmed, first by, well, first by the district court's decision and then by the Court of Appeals. Then we get to the Supreme Court and all of a sudden I realize that there's a jurisdictional argument that kind of trumps the Rule 19. In other words, if you don't appropriately serve parties under Skyline and under Elbert, the court loses jurisdiction completely. It's just like if someone were to not serve someone in an appeal under, uh, under your rules. It'd be the same as a contested case under the APA. If the parties appropriate. Why, why do we need Rule 19? If that's the rule of law, why do we need Rule 19 at all? I mean, your argument is basically if you don't serve all the parties, if you don't serve a necessary party, the case is dismissed. I think, I think that's true. In, so in this what, case, because so of the... So what purpose does Rule 19 serve I, at all? I think Rule 19 identifies them as being a necessary party. So the only purpose of Rule 19 is to decide, but then why do you have this whole thing about, why do you have 1902 then? Well, because that's what the lower courts relied on. No, no, why does 1902 exist in the first place? I mean, the logic right? of your argument would say we don't need Rule 1902. The, the, the way I understand Rule 1902 is that's the means by which uh, the district court determines whether it's going to proceed with or without the, the absent party, absent But necessary. your argument is, is if the party's absent, the court doesn't have jurisdiction over anybody. Correct. So then... I don't think 19, I, 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 my, my point, and I, maybe I'm being confusing here, is in the lower courts applied 1901, applied 1902, wasn't challenged by appellants on either basis, and this court could affirm based on that analysis alone. But I think the more stronger argument, and for purposes of precedent moving forward, I think the court has to look at the jurisdictional, aspect, jurisdictional aspects of this case and the implications of not serving a necessary party, and specifically the applicant for the variance. And this case is just the applicant. That's all I'm talking about. Counsel, I, I heard you earlier to say <clears throat> that um, neither the ordinance nor the statute specify who you have to serve, right? Correct. And then I think you said doesn't even say, they don't even say you have to serve the municipality. It, do it doesn't. Well, I'm taking a look at 462.361, and it talks subdivision one deals with the review of action. Do you happen to have that statute? I just have the uh, provision subdivision one, yes. Subdivision two says in actions brought under this section, a municipality may raise as a defense the fact the complaining party has not attempted to remedy the grievance. That at least implies 
that, that the municipality needs to be served because you're reviewing the municipality's ordinance, rule, regulation, decision, or order. Isn't that right? You're reviewing it, but it doesn't say serve them. I mean, the, the service requirements, a lot of things related to the variance reviews have is, has been established by case law. Skyline educated people how to serve people, or who to serve. It said you're going to do it as a new action under 4.03 versus 5.02. Right. People were caught off guard. People were surprised, as Justice Anderson pointed out and as opposing counsel pointed out. It's a harsh result. But the practice of law is not a science. It's, it, you, you develop the law as it goes. And to the extent a ordinance or statute is ambiguous, this court has to interpret it appropriately. Same with regard to, I think there's a case out there dealing with fees. It doesn't say you have to pay the fee, but in one case, someone didn't pay the fee, and the court threw it out, lack of jurisdiction. Counsel, uh, if I may, just following up a little bit on Justice Thiessen's, Justice Thiessen's question to you, what, if any, effect would your proposed rule on the jurisdiction piece, would that have any effect in terms of how Rule 19 is applied outside of this context, outside of the variance context? Because it, I, I, I kind of wondered the same thing that my colleague did, that what's the point then of Rule 19, which, which allows <laughs> district courts to add necessary parties um, if, it, if it deems that proper, if it, if it follows the criteria in Rule 19. So I'm wondering if we adopt your position, what that says, or what, if anything, maybe it doesn't have any impact outside of this context. That's I don't think it would. It, it, if based on the unique nature of this case dealing with an appeal, and therefore uh, having specific jurisdictional implications if it's not perfected appropriately, uh, I don't think it would have any impact under 1902. I think so, 1901 is used to uh, identify who are the necessary parties. So, uh, write the rule of law for me. What would we say? Because you're, you're suggesting, it seems to me, that we have to cabin this in some way. So what would the rule of law be in your mind? As a, as a matter of law, I would argue that the applicant for a variance is a necessary and indispensable party to a, an appeal of a variance and should be included in any action to proceed with a review of that um, decision uh, in district court. Again, the statute doesn't require it. The ordinance doesn't require it. The ordinance doesn't require, you know, this court has the ability to define that rule. And I think that should be the rule. Counsel, are there any finality concerns lurking here? I mean, how long ago was this variance granted? What's going on with the property? It just, it, I just wonder if there are any finality concerns at play at all here. Finality in what sense, Your Honor? Well, in other words, if we say the court has jurisdiction to consider this appeal and uh, the applicant has more than the 30-day time period to serve um, the billies in this case, so what's the deadline? I mean, when do they have to perfect service? I mean, does the case just sit there in district court for three years while somebody tries to find? I mean, meanwhile, what's going on with this property? It's probably all done. And so how can you really effectively appeal from a variance if it's already been completely implemented? Those are the finality concerns I'm wondering about. That's, that's the reason for the 30-day deadline in both the ordinance and in 394.23. 
Uh, we're deal dealing with land use issues here. We're dealing with people who want to move forward with the, the construction of a house. And that's exactly what the Billies did. They've constructed the house. It's there. Um, and, and finality goes to it. Uh, as Justice Anderson did indicate in, in the Skyline case, we want some clarity here. We want consistency. And I think this case would provide that for everyone moving forward. I don't think it's, I think it provides consistency to the landowner. I mean, what if they don't get noticed? What, they, what if they don't even know the appeals going forward? Uh, they have to have some kind of notice and due process. Council, um, as far as the rule of law that you're urging us to adopt, I think you're saying if you're an interested party, then you have to be served within 30 days. What's the definition that we should adopt of the phrase interested party? I think it would be consistent with the Rule 19, but I think you could make the rule of law being that based on an applicant's interest in the outcome of a variance decision, that as a matter of law, they have an, they have an interest in this that cannot be ignored and should be included in any appeal. Well, I know you think an applicant is an interested party, but as far as the general phrase interested party, you just say adopt wholesale Rule 19 law. Is that what you're saying? Are you talking about for other parties that aren't applicants? Yeah, like my, uh, my historic yeah, I understand. Uh, district hypothetical. I mean, people's homes are going to be locked in. They can't make changes that aren't consistent with a historic plan. Are they interested parties? I think that's a bit broader than most, but I, I can tell you, uh, Your Honor, that in these cases that we cited, these other jurisdictions, and some are distinguishable and some are the same, but the significance is applicants of a variance are interested parties. And counsel, in one of those the, cases- The problem, the, counsel, though, is, is it's, uh, I think what Justice Lohog is getting at is it, that's a slippery slope. I mean, we're gonna start, we're gonna get the case that's not the, the direct applicants. And your smile tells me you know that. I, I understand that, but I think <laughs> um, the, I think the we're going to get the one that they're they're Justice Lillehog's uh, folks, that. you know, or you know, and so you're talking about the need for clarity and certainty, and you're absolutely right. And so, where's again, what's that rule? What's a, who's an interested party? For purposes of this case, the rule is that the applicant is an interested party, as a matter of law. In my view, and, and I think so that you're saying be. we can do this incrementally. We can, we can, <laughs> we can say, well, we know for sure. And I would agree with you. And I think nobody yeah. disagrees in this case that the Billies were were necessary parties. Right. I mean, that's the easy case, if you will, of who's a necessary party. Well, well, let me say this with my last minute and a half or two minutes. Um, what we're talking about here is whether to affirm this this decision, and it can be affirmed on two grounds. It can be affirmed on the application of Rule 1902 or 1901 and 1902. Was there an abuse of discretion by the district court in deciding not to proceed and move forward with the case in the absence of the billies from the case? I think this court could affirm it on that basis, period. Counsel, and let me interrupt you there. Um, doesn't Rule 19 provide all of the safeguards you need for those finality concerns that you were talking about with the chief? Because you yourself brought a Rule 19 motion right off the bat when, when the um, Billies were dismissed because of our Cox decision, mm -hmm. and and that that was that was as good as a as a motion to dismiss on jurisdictional grounds as you're saying now. So I I really don't see that um, that that um, I I think Rule 19 is very protective of of the uh, of this town's interest and the 
than the applicant's interest. If the court decides to proceed strictly on the Rule 19 uh, issue, uh, you know, finality then is somewhat less clear because uh, someone would have to challenge uh, either whether someone's there or should be there and bring a motion and decide how to proceed and how far down the line have we gone and, and apply the criteria of 1901 and apply the uh, elements of 1902. So if under a pure 19, Rule 19 analysis, the finality aspect of what we're trying to get here uh, would be lost. But this, court, this case could be affirmed under pure Rule 19 analysis. Appellants have not challenged the criteria or the decisions of the district court or the court of appeals on those grounds. Um, I personally think that the more uh, succinct argument and rule of law is the jurisdictional one that because we're dealing with jurisdictional issues, the absence of serving everyone who's interested and an applicant with, uh, for the variance is clearly interested, uh, the court loses jurisdiction over the whole matter, like any appeal up to this court. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Paul, you have five minutes for rebuttal. In the Court of Appeals' opinion, they write, thus the district court did not abuse its discretion by determining that, that the ability's presence is necessary. The problem that I have is that um, if I had just served a notice of appeal, summons and a notice of appeal, served the township, that the township thereafter and, and in every case could bring a motion to say that I and other practitioners didn't uh, serve people and, that were interested and indispensable, and then a district court could then decide whether the argument of a township challenging um, the, the perfection of my appeal could say, yep, you know, I agree with the township that that person should have been served or that person should have been served. And there were, you know, 10 people that were in favor of the variance. All 10 of those have to be served. There are 10 people against the variance. All of those people have to be served. I agree with the township, the district court uh, analyzes, and therefore the appeal is not properly perfected. That is a concern that I would have about making sure that the skyline philosophy, that we have a rule of law that we can count on and make sure that an appeal is properly perfected without the uncertainty of a district judge exercising its discretion. Um, so suddenly, whether an appeal is properly perfected becomes discretionary to a district court judge um, Council, if, if we agree with you that the district court had jurisdiction, here, that your appeal was perfected by timely service on the municipality, but we also say the billies are necessary parties and have to be in the case, how long do you have to serve the billies? Well, if you made that ruling, then I, is there a deadline I, um, for some of the claims for declaratory relief, um, there's probably a six-year statute of limitations, but you, I wouldn't wait around for six years because you'd want to get the challenge to the variance um, in front of the court 
and decided by the district court as quickly as possible. So if um, the district court judge had said, A, the billies are indispensable and necessary, and I'm going to exercise the discretion that I have and issue an order that they be served within 30 days of the date of this order, then I would comply with that order. Um, and I would, I would look to the district What's court. What's the district court's authority to put a time limit on when you have to serve? Where, where, where is that authority found? In the standard um, jurisdictional uh, statute that's in a pile of paper that I'm not going to be able to find in, in the next few minutes, to be honest with you, because I had that and I was locked and loaded, ready to answer the question about how it, it's got general powers of, so that's that's what I would say, Judge, and I, I, I can't remember the. Well, 1901 says that the, if the district court thinks that there's a necess, necessary party that hasn't been joined, the district court, it says um, the court shall order that the person be made a party. I, it, it doesn't give a time frame, but I would think under these circumstances that that would be pretty council, immediate. Council, that's probably, and sorry, Justice Tudich, I didn't mean to um, step over you. Uh, that's just in, as you were saying, the general powers of district court as they're managing their caseload. That's not an uncommon action where district court would say, I want you to, you are ordered to do X in the next two weeks, X in the next 30 days, X in the next 45 days. That's nothing outside the ordinary, right? It is not. I, you know, I haven't been faced in my career with an order that says that you have to join somebody that you haven't joined, but the, the courts often set deadlines for things to make sure that they keep rolling. And with respect to the finality argument, um, Your Honor, um, clearly the Billies knew that my clients and I were challenging the issuance of the variance. They were served, uh, albeit not within 30 days, but within 40 days. And they, the fact that uh, their house is complete or nearly complete, you know, that's on them. It's, it's not on me or my clients. And the fact that they proceeded to construct their house knowing, I mean, they had practical knowledge, real knowledge that um, this proceeding was going on. And of course, you know, justice is never quick. We got, have gone through the appellate procedure and, and here we are, albeit however long ago it was, um, but it's nothing that we did that uh, had the Billies complete their house. And, and so my clients, it seems to me, deserve to know um, whether or not the town of Duluth uh, applicate variance order that allows, and this, this is just the real practicality of the situation, to build a house on the shore of Lake Superior on a lot that is 0.3 acres when the ordinance itself requires two acres. Um, my clients should be able to get some guidance about whether that's going to happen in the future. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Thanks Appreciate to both. your attention. Thank you very much. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this case. This matter <coughs> is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course.